1: Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I am Kimberly Lewis, your host, and today I am really, really excited because today our show is going to celebrate Black History Month, and I have a very distinguished guest to help me do that. But before we do that, what is Leadership Beyond Borders about Leadership Beyond Borders is about helping you become aware of the best leadership practices, leadership trends, and thoughts around leadership. We often talk about business issues that leaders need to be aware of in order to lead their businesses successfully in today's global marketplace. But the heart of this program lies in helping you become the best leader you can be. And you cannot do that unless you're informed. We live in a global market. And you as a leader must understand the mosaics that make up the world we live in. And that mosaic is diverse. And it should be diverse because diversity stimulates innovation and change. But at the same time, our global economy encourages diversity, old values, beliefs, and habits can stifle diversity. A lack of education can make things seem one way when actually they're another way. And one of our goals of this show is not only to encourage you as a leader, but to inform you, help you open your eyes so that you can help shape the world around you. And we're going to help you do that today. So if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, if you are a business owner, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we will make sure that you take away something useful for either yourself or your business. You can also access us on Voice America Business Channel. Under Leadership Beyond Borders, you can download us, listen to us on iTunes and Google Play. And we have some great leadership stories. We have great interviews. We have great leadership advice. And we talk about subjects that will make you think and help you in today's global economy. Now, going on to today's episode, I read a few months ago that one morning, an Palo Alto, California in the United States, over 200 of the most powerful African American leaders in Silicon Valley gathered for the first ever Silicon Valley diversity brunch. They had come to discuss and bring change in an industry that had managed to keep minorities at an arm's length for many decades. Leaders from nearly every global tech firm, including Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Intel, were in attendance. The brunch was about getting many of the most powerful African-American leaders in the industry in one room and honoring these leaders for their contributions and discussing with them how to increase the number of African-American leaders in the tech industry. Now, expanding the flow of African-American and other minority talents into industries, not just the tech industries, has been a target of many companies, including Intel, Google, and Apple. And, today, and they together have contributed over $350 million to organizations promoting diversity in tech. But everyone agrees, although these investments are a great start, money alone won't solve the issue. Money alone is a small push of the envelope. And everybody agrees that the more diversity there is among all companies, not just tech companies, the more greater innovation is. And the more likely these companies will be able to address the needs and challenges of today's diverse communities in this global environment. But still, things are not changing fast enough. The lack of progress in representation of African-Americans and Latino employees in tech is really notable. Approximately 18% of the students that graduate with computer science and computer engineering degrees are of African American or Latino background and tech companies should be asking themselves why are these students not becoming part of their tech workforce or part of their tech leaders. But the current political environment in the United States does not really support such efforts. If we really want to make America great again, it has to include those people who helped make it great in the first place. And we have to make sure we do this. We don't want to cut diversity programs. We don't want to fuel majority programs. We want to make a change and have a contribution from everybody. So today, in celebration of Black History Month, we're going to look at the journey of African Americans from history, where they are today, and discuss how we can promote leadership among minorities today. And my guest today is Professor Dr. Max Hilaire, a summa cum laude graduate of Morgan State University. He holds an MA a master's of philosophy and a PhD degrees in international relationships with concentration in international law and international organization from Columbia University in New York. He was the first person of color to compete, complete a PhD in international law at Columbia, His expertise includes public international law, international human rights, international humanitarian law, United Nations law, and US foreign relationships law. Dr. Professor Hilaire is a two-time Fulbright scholarship in, from Nigeria and in Czech Republic. Professor Dr. Hilaire has lectured in over 70 universities and institutions in over 45 countries and has taught students of more than 75 different nationalities. He has helped migrate conflicts in Ghana, Angola, Mozambique, and Nigeria. During the past two years, Professor Hilaire delivered a number of distinguished lectures on a wide range of international issues, including the United Nations Security Council and the maintenance of international peace security. He has had writings cited by scholars all over the world, and we are very, very lucky to welcome you to the show, Dr. Professor Hilaire, and I'm going to call you Max, if that's okay. Okay.
2: That's excellent. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for the introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here. I also have to um, say to you I appreciate the fact that you have taken this segment to address the issue of diversity in the United States and to pay particular attention to the uh, evolution of uh, the African-American in this society. And I again, I, went, I can't uh, overemphasize the fact that the contribution African-Americans and people of African descent have made, not only to the economic development of the United States, but to the world in general, Um, has been underappreciated and I think uh, having this celebration or or the observance of Black History Month is an effort to re-educate not just the U.S. population but the world of the contribution people of color and people not just from Africa but Asia, the Middle East, Latin America have made to this great civilization we have in this world and we need to preserve it with all its diversity which is what makes us great.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and as we know, and we've seen many studies, diversity promotes innovation. And I'd like to, Max, I'd like to just start a little bit because I'm not so sure all of our listeners understand the history of of, um, Black History Month. Could you just give us a little bit of uh, how it started?
2: Well, this, uh, it goes back to uh, uh, Carter J. Woodson back in 1926, So, as a, an educator or publisher, or, uh, an author himself and his own writer, historian, decided that we needed to have some more inclusion in the History curriculum in the United States and devoted one week in 1926, um, as he called it, uh, Black History Week. In 1976, they, uh, it was expanded and it became uh, Black History Month. And since 1976, we've seen a proliferation of activities and effort around this period. Yes, it's the shortest month of the year, but it's it's symbolic in that it's the birthday celebration of both Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Frederick Douglass, a great uh, liberator, he was one of the first U.S. ambassador or one of the ambassadors to Haiti, um, met with Abraham Lincoln on a number of occasions. And um, of course, for those who don't know, Abraham Lincoln was the president who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, so that is the reason why Black History is celebrated in February.
1: Mm-hmm. Can, we, can we talk a little bit about that history just to, to make sure that, that people understand that? So we... When you talk about the Emancipation Act, that was in 1833. Is that correct? No, it's um, uh, um, well,
2: 1865. Uh,
1: 65. Excuse me. Yes. Okay. Okay. And then, and then a few years after that, you had um, the establishment of the NAACP, and then in 1964, you had the uh, titled um, Seven the of the Rights Civil Rights Act. Act. So how how did just a little bit on that flow? there for us so to give us kind of a repeat in history if well, you-
2: uh, again, uh, keep in mind, slavery ended in the United States much later than it ended, let's say, in the Caribbean. Slavery ended in the Caribbean in 1834, uh, uh, and it didn't end in the United States uh, until 1865. So, um, And then if we go back to uh, 1803, uh, the Haitian Revolution, which is the first... Um, uh, slave uh, uh, population in the western hemisphere to fight the greatest army on the planet then army and to defeat them and to declare themselves uh, an independent country. So Haiti, Haitian slaves who particularly Toussaint Louverture, who was a house slave was overhearing much of the conversation about the French Revolution while he was in the Great House and then organized uh, Haitian slaves to rebel against uh, the plant, plantation owners and uh, so Haiti became the first black republic in the Western Hemisphere and in a a way that encouraged other uh, uh, Blacks in in the United States and the Caribbean to push for uh, greater freedom and for liberation. But it happened in the United States much later. The the Mm -hmm. slave regime in the United States was a very brutal uh, regime and that was combined uh, with a a, a racial uh, segregation uh, era in the United States that went on way beyond the end of slavery. In fact, the end, the civil war was fought precisely over uh, the South wanting to maintain the institution of slavery, whereas the North wanted uh, to end slavery. So, you have groups, both people from the Caribbean who migrated to the United States as free blacks, establishing organizations and um, even uh, setting up this whole movement to take people back to Africa and hence we have the creation of Liberia for free blacks from the United States and the Caribbean to move back to Africa and also Freetown, Sierra Leone where uh, uh, slave ships were stopped on the high seas and return, so people were return to Sierra Leone and then Caribbean people and uh, liberated African Americans who wanted to return to Africa had that opportunity Opportunity to either go to Sierra Leone or to Africa. So the NAACP created in the late 1800s and uh, W.E.B. Dubois was one of a leading uh, individual, but even in the late 1800s with uh, the Marcos Gavi movement, Marcos Gavi was a Jamaican nationalist who wanted to uh, move people back to Africa and set up this Black Starliner uh, movement. But three vessels mm-hmm. had had an investment corporation selling bonds and uh, quite successful. And uh, he was sabotaged both by uh, African American ex slaves and also by the white establishment because they felt a uh, black man being so powerful in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have undermined the whole institution of slavery so Marcos Gavi was falsely charged imprisoned and later deported and it wasn't until uh, uh, president george HW Bush was uh, elected uh, the prime president of uh, the prime minister of uh, Jamaica got the United states to grant uh, Marcos Gavi a post uh, uh, humorous reprieve
1: mm-hmm. so when when I look at this and and when we really think about it, I mean, this was not that long ago, okay, and um, no, this has been a, yeah, it's, you know, and and that's what I think I want our our listeners to wear because it's been it's been a a, a very slow systemic systemic historical development. And um, we're going to take a break in a minute. And when we come back, Max, what I'd like to do is is it's really good that we look at this and understand it wasn't that long ago. And I'd like to take a look at today. okay? And I'd like to take a look at where are we in America today. And um, starting to look at you know where the majority of the population of African-Americans are and talk a little bit about politics, because this is all about politics and, and how do we get the right representation in politics of African-Americans or minorities and li- Latinos. Okay, So we're going to take a, a, a small break. And for our listeners, we're talking to Professor Dr. Max Hilaire, And he is a Fulbright scholar and also has degrees in public international law, human rights, international humanitarian law, and he is a United Nations law expert, an author, and lecturer on U.S. foreign relations. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And if our listeners want to reach you, they can reach you at max underscore hill at yahoo.co. and I urge you to reach out to Max um, with your questions. And I am Kimberly Lewis, uh, uh, your host on Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm a diversity leadership trainer, business expert, and a director of the Women's Leadership Academy 2020, promoting opportunities for women and minorities through training and awareness. You can Check out my website at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. And with that, Max, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to go fast forward a little bit and talk about today. Okay, very good.
5: Skilled migrants throughout the world can face a variety of challenges. Many times they settle for jobs that are below their skill level because their education and qualifications are not recognized. Do we need local experience in a global world? Join host Alma Besserdon for The Global Workplace. We'll explore the issues being faced by migrants as well as showcase diversity and recognize the leadership and inclusion roles of some of today's top global organizations. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
0: listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. I am your host, Kimberly Lewis, and today we are celebrating... Black History Month, and we're speaking with Professor Dr. Max Hilaire, Fulbright Scholar, Public International Law, Human Rights, International Law humanitarian law and United Nations law expert, author and lecturer as well as U.S. foreign relations expert Now before the break um, Dr. Hilaire and I talked a little bit about the history of Black History Month and not only that about how the the African American population has contributed to building of America and Max I'd, I'd like to stay in that for a minute and fast forward today um, because we 're still struggling, we talked about it it, it wasn 't that long ago, but where in the whole economic mesh of of the United States today, where sits the, the greatest populations of African Americans today?
2: Well, I think the vast majority of African Americans are still concentrated in the uh, former Confederate uh, states, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly in uh, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, Alabama, uh, Mississippi. But there is also a large number concentrated in the urban areas in the Northeast and the West Coast. Mm So um, it's quite spread out, um, but not. Uh, in in terms yeah. of a heavy concentration, I, I think the vast majority where there is both economic empowerment and political um, power, you would find it mostly in the South, particularly states like Georgia and mm-hmm. uh, Alabama, uh, not well, North Carolina, Texas, mm-hmm. and elsewhere
1: and And in the economical situation, um i had I had read some statistics that still the the majority. Of the the lower economical twenty five percent of um, people in the United States are a combined of uh, minorities, either African American or Latinos. Or economically, where does that fit today? Well,
2: again, I think the uh, the lower strata of the economic ladder in the United States is heavily uh, populated by the people of color, the, both Hispanics and African Americans, and uh, part uh, it's. In part because there is low home ownership for African Americans. Let's not forget during the segregation period, uh, African Americans were redlined, couldn't buy property in certain areas, they couldn't get loans from the banks, and hence African Americans, unlike uh, Caucasians, were not able to pass on wealth from generation to generation. It's become more complicated, especially since the um, 2008 financial crisis and the mortgage meltdown where Mm. initially African Americans were given higher interest rates uh, mortgage loans uh, than whites with comparable Uh, credit scores, and hence many of these people ended up losing their homes during the uh, financial crisis starting in 2008. Um, Today, we find African Americans uh, uh, own fewer uh, homes than uh, their counterpart, even those with the same level of income, the same um, credit rating scores, and hence it's going to impact the um uh, the widening of the the economic gap in the United States uh simply because people build wealth on uh property and investment and the tax codes are sort of favorable to those who own uh property or who have investment income and we see African Americans are continu- continuously disadvantaged because of their low participation both in owning property and then in investment um activities mm-hmm.
1: so well, i'm hearing from you there still is and i, I want to say some kind of systemic from and, and when i say systemic from the overall system there's still some systemic discrimination going on it's, it's, to-
2: yes it's institutional and uh the, the federal government has not been very proactive yes on the pres- and Carter, there was an attempt to e- eradicate this systemic uh, discrimination in lending, uh, but we've seen over the years an erosion of that effort on the part of the federal government to encourage home ownership among minorities and basically give the banks a free uh, reign to discriminate against people of color. In fact, if you look at the record of... Um, uh, um, Wells Fargo and Bank America these are the two big banks uh, that were most responsible, and the federal government uh, has issued hefty fines, particularly against Wells Fargo for uh, its systemic discrimination against African American in the mortgage and financial uh, sectors so uh, this issue is not just coincidental. It's an attempt Mm -hmm. to to, uh, really deny people an opportunity to participate in the marketplace equally as others. And we see even today uh, with um, gentrification in most of the urban areas which are affecting African-Americans, New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Miami. These are areas that were heavily concentrations of African-Americans. And because of gentrification, where the banks are loaning Uh, newcomers, particularly highly educated white uh, uh, individuals, loaning them, giving them mortgages to buy properties in these areas. It has created a a situation where uh, African-Americans are forced to move out of these areas. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned in my lecture, the last mayoral election in Washington, D.C., which was uh, three and a half years ago, um, more more people of uh, Caucasian background voted in that election than uh, Mm African-Americans, simply because African-Americans cannot afford to live in Washington, D.C., and this was one of the heaviest concentration of African-Americans, particularly middle-class African-Americans in the country, and thus being decimated as a result of gentrification.
1: And and that's what it's about, isn't it, Max? It's about politics. So it comes down to we're talking about federal institutions. We're talking about you know, uh, uh, system systematic you know discrimination. And I guess my question would to you would be um, how how do we start to get more minorities? In legislative seats. Okay, now I know there was a slight increase in the 115th Congress, but that's certainly enough. What are what are the obstacles that are that are facing um, minority us today, so we can? Yes. A well, the,
2: here's the problem. One is gerrymandering where people are systematically drawing boundaries to exclude certain ethnic groups from um, being able to win congressional seats in elections. Um, so Two is the cost of running a campaign and three is the fact that 90% of congressional seats are non-competitive. These are seats that are uh, held by incumbents and uh, they have the advantage in terms of raising money, in terms of um, campaigning and hence, it makes it extremely difficult for a newcomer to penetrate this uh, system. Unless someone resigns or retires from and then you have an opening, it becomes extremely difficult. The country is also becoming a lot more polarized. So you find more people with similar views are moving in the same neighborhoods. So excluding those with diverse uh, or opposing views. And So hence, we see a situation in the United States where um, in certain congressional districts, you need not apply, and it, it's done both by Republicans and Democrats in in United um, state houses and in legislatures where they redraw these boundaries to protect their own um, candidates and their parties. So um, increasingly it's it's in in a way unless the courts step in and invalidate the the bound the congressional boundaries as we saw in Texas um, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and then there are a couple of cases in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania before the Supreme Court right now. It's it's going to be almost impossible for African-Americans to be able to win more seats than what they have currently. Uh, plus, there was uh, the 1976 uh, amendment to the uh, 64 uh, 64 voting rights act. Um, the uh, Supreme Court has basically vacated the oversight the Justice Department had over 22 states that had a history of uh, discriminating against African-American voters or uh, systematically excluding them from being able to participate in the electoral process. So that has sort of given a window to uh, candidates in in the red states in particular that they could redraw boundaries they could um pass election laws that make it difficult for people to register to vote for people to actually vote and um to actually declare their candidacies so um it's a combination of factors that is making it increasingly more difficult and finally i i have to say they the political Climate in the United States is such that it's alienating a large segment of mm. the population, particularly young people who, don't, who really don't see results from the federal government and, or even their state and local government and hence are not participating as uh, they ought to do.
1: Mm-hmm. And that, and actually, that's a really good point. That was going to be my my next question because, uh, as a as a young person, as a minority, there's all these challenges out there facing me. And um, I actually had a discussion yesterday on the issues with women um, not getting leadership positions or CEO positions. And and if I was a minority. In the United States right now, um, either Hispanic or, or um, African American or something else, and I see these challenges. It might be a little bit discouraging to me. So, is there anything? What can we do educationally to to not just edu- not just encourage young people and say yes, you know, take this challenge, but also to education to educate everybody. Uh, um, about what's happening? Is there anything we can do
2: there? I think the educational institutions have done fairly well in um uh recruiting women there are more female students uh in universities in the united states than men it's a balance 40 55 women 45 men Mm, women are graduating at a much higher level and also at the top of the class the problem we see is again the glass ceiling for women in the corporate world or in other professional areas and in also pay scales. So even in 2016, women are making less than men with comparable education and skills. And even for African-American women. Uh, it's like 68 cents on the dollar. So an Mm African-American woman or a man could be equally educated from one of the top institutions in the United States and end up making less money than a a Caucasian male. And of course, it's discouraging for women. It's discouraging for minorities. And there's also a hostility, whether it's on Wall Street or in uh, Silicon Valley, where you just, as a minority or as a woman, you just don't feel welcome, and hence people tend not to uh, go to these places to work. So uh, initially, the federal government was the place for women, for minorities who were looking to um, move up the the uh, professional world. But that's even closing in uh, slowly or, or rapidly mm-hmm. on them, and therefore it's it's discouraging if you're if you're a young woman or you know a minority person see all these um, barriers being put up and you're not getting the support from our courts or from the federal government.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think I think it's not really about gender. What I'm, I'm thinking is I'm looking at the, the, whole, the, the whole package of minorities and that's what we're talking about today um, uh, with um, Black History Month because it, it, you, we need to educate people more. We need to educate companies more because it is discouraging if, as, as you were talking about, you know, the politics and the and you know if I was a younger um, African African American and I wanted to run for politics first I have to overcome the political issues and I have to overcome the costs and um and we need to do a better job encouraging people and saying and supporting them and helping them overcome these challenges and I think um, Dr Hilaire, we're going to take a, a small break okay. And- and when when I come back, I, I really want to talk about that, because you mentioned the women in universities, and I know that 16% of the university graduates today are also African American. And I want to talk about how how we get them, not just in political leadership positions, but also into leadership positions in companies, such as what they were trying to do in Silicon Valley, and, and okay. hear what you have to say that, okay? Okay, very and, good. Okay, and for our listeners, uh, we are talking today to Professor Dr. Max Hilaire, and we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I, as I said, I want to address career opportunities in different industries and the representative, representation of leadership in certain industries and how we get minorities into these industries. If you'd like to reach out to Max, you can reach him at max underscore hill, H-I-L, at yahoo. .co.uk, and I'm sure he would love to hear from you. And Max is a Fulbright scholar, public international, and expert on public international law, human rights, international humanitarian law, United Nations law expert, author, lecturer, and U.S. foreign relations. Expert. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. I'm a diversity leadership trainer, business expert, and director of the Women's Leadership Academy 2020, promoting opportunities for women and minorities through training and awareness. You can also go to my website at leadershipbeyondborders.net um, or reach me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. And with that, we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
5: Skilled migrants throughout the world can face a variety of challenges. Many times they settle for jobs that are below their skill level because their education and qualifications are not recognized. Do we need local experience in a global world? Join host Alma Besserdon for The Global Workplace. We'll explore the issues being faced by migrants as well as showcase diversity and recognize the leadership and inclusion roles of some of today's top global organizations. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Kimberly Lewis, and today we're speaking with Professor Dr. Max Hilaire, Fulbright Scholar, Public International Law, Human Rights. International Humanitarian Law and United Nations Law expert, author, and lecturer, and U.S. foreign relations expert. So today, I'm so excited because we're celebrating Black History Month, and um, Dr. Hilaire has given us some history about this, and then we've talked about the situation today of minorities in politics, and Max, I'd like to move a little bit into corporate America now, okay, yeah. and I um, how I mean, we have we have anti discrimination laws in place that employers are supposed to deal with, but we're still dealing with this issue of diversity, whether it's whether it's uh, minority, any kind of minority, whether it's you know gender or or Hispanic or African American. What what can companies do better to address this situation? Well, I
2: uh, number one. I think companies ought to begin early to identify talented African Americans and bring them into their uh, corporate headquarters and uh, train these tu- these students, uh, mentor them, um, give them that exposure that would make them feel comfortable when they graduate from school to want to work for these companies. Companies also need to invest more in their in early childhood education and. Uh, Uh, Our education in the United States uh, from early education, middle school, secondary school uh, is simply not Competitive to Singapore and South Korea and the Netherlands and others. So we need to take a, a greater look at reforming the education system that would prepare our students for the workforce of the 21st century. And I think we can't rely on the government solely to do it. So this is where corporate America needs to step in and to identify schools they could adopt and work with, particularly in uh, depressed communities, Because having a two-tier economy in the United States or having one group of the population left behind, is to the detriment of the greatness of the United States. So they would do well to identify students early in many of these areas uh, that are left behind and to bring them into the mainstream and then prepare them for careers in their specific, specific fields.
1: Mm-hmm. Let me let me stay on the education for a minute before we come back to the, the corporations because you said something very important that that we're not measuring up in the United States um, to other countries such as Singapore and and also not only that we have diverse classrooms today but we're not really teaching things like um, black history, or we're not teaching, we're we're having people, the children go to learn to do tests. What can we do better at the really, at the lower level to promote diversity and encourage children to want to learn? Well, it it needs to start early
2: as uh, we need to uh, do better in the uh, textbooks and the various uh, television programs we, we have. Um, because a lot of the textbook exclude uh, whether it's uh, images of of people of color, of women in key positions. It's also exclude um, the history of of African-Americans in these textbooks. So, um, and hence the reason for Black History Month, which has made some progress, but a lot is lacking because you could go to any university or to any high school in the country and students know Absolutely nothing about the contribution of African-Americans to Ooh. the economic development of the United States or the world. You don't read anything about the contribution of Africa unless it's negative. So, yes, people have heard of slavery slavery but ask them some details about slavery and nobody knows so unlike the caribbean where we are taught uh, a great deal about the history of africans in the new world and slavery and its contribution to economic development in europe and the um industrial revolution that is completely excluded from the Textbooks in middle school and high schools in the United States and it should be, we need some educational reform that is more inclusive and we need to give opportunities to all students because we don't know who is going to be uh, the next engineer, the next um, scientist or the next mathematician or the next um, great philosopher. So depriving a segment of the population of access to uh, a good education is to the detriment, again, to the entire United States and not just to that particular segment.
1: Mm-hmm. Because it, it is, it's about, it, it begins with education, doesn't it? Because education breeds understanding and breeds tolerance and then brings acceptance. So if most, we can, yeah, if we most can start... Certainly. You know? mm-hmm. And, and it also
2: can... it's, the great, it's the great equalizer because we've mm-hmm. seen uh, people uh, particularly minorities who go to college there's a greater chance that their children will go to college and then okay. it makes it this is the the pathway to the middle class or so to recognizing the American dream. So, um, access to education is critical, but what we're seeing in the United States today is this whole emphasis on charter schools, um, unequal funding in education, that the formula for uh, funding schools is based on property taxes. So, if you live in a high-income, high property community, your chances of going to a good public school is and getting a better education is greater than if you live in in an urban area where all the students are black. We've seen also a movement away from these urban areas, so many of the schools are heavily segregated, and it's not by choice, it's just people have removed their shadows with uh, the Ability to do so have moved their kids to private schools or moved to the suburbs and the inner cities, uh, or public schools in general, uh, majority minorities. And therefore, we don't see as much emphasis in terms of funding technology in these schools as we see in some of the private schools or in the wealthy suburbs in the United States. Mm-hmm.
1: And what what come to come back to to the corporations on that? Um, we've got we've got some pretty impressive leaders out there and some large corporations. Some um, David Drummond in Google and John Thompson on Microsoft and 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 we are see that there some of these companies. We saw what they did in Silicon Valley. We see what they're trying to do. What else could they do? (laughs) Is there mentorship? Well,
2: again, I would say uh, they're doing a lot at a later stage. I think the emphasis, as we see in Singapore, as we see in South Korea, as we see in uh, Barbados, in Trinidad and Tobago. uh, we need to invest more in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. We also need to give students that exposure to the world. So learning a language when you're in elementary school, learning about the geography of the world, which is excluded from curriculums there, learning about the history, not just of one group of people, but of all peoples. And I think corporations can play a big role in investing in these uh, areas and early education not so much at the university level. We also need corporations to instead of giving large sums of money to the big wealthy universities, MIT, Harvard, uh, USC, at least you could continue to give to them. But also think about it, the majority of our students go to public universities. So if you were to contribute some to the public universities, you would make a big difference in the lives of poor students, minority students who attend these universities, many of them have to work full-time, they are juggling schedules, and consequently they cannot concentrate on doing well in college, and hence their competitiveness is reduced because they do not get the grades they ought to get to be competitive with students coming out Mm -hmm. from the private universities. So I think companies would do uh, the best they could do is not putting so much effort at the, at, the, at the end of the process, but at the beginning of the process. And mm-hmm. I think we'll see a huge difference if they were to invest in science, technology, and math in the elementary schools, in the middle schools in the United States, instead of putting it in the universities in the U.S.
1: Very, very good point. And Max, we have, we have a lot of lead, leaders listening today. And um, as we're getting towards the end of our program, if you had two messages or two points to deliver to the leaders of companies, not just, the, I mean, you, you said, you talked about what companies have to do, but the leaders themselves as people. What would you a- ask them to do or how can they contribute to making diversity better? I,
2: I would say to the companies be honest about themselves they are to reach out they need to uh, speak out on that issue make a public commitment that they want a diverse workforce they realize it's in the best interest of their companies and the United States or the world in general um, to have a diverse workforce to be mm-hmm. inclusive and and also to make people whether it's women or minorities feel their way Welcome in their mix. So you can't have everybody from Harvard who's never had any contact with minority students or female students to now be in a position of superior, where in a superior position, and then can relate um, with somebody who came from an urban area and has never had much contact. So this. Uh, people coming from two complete different worlds. And I think we ought to do more to integrate these groups, those coming from uh, elite institutions, those coming from wealthy suburbs in the United States and people coming from the inner cities and the urban areas. And we ought to start that very early, not wait when they're adults because it simply does not work. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to say to the companies, I, I appreciate the effort what you are making, but we need to do more because we have seen the United States is more divided, the wealth gap is expanding in the U.S., and it's not because people do not want to work. African Americans, um, they work at the lower level, at lower wages, but yet they work. So if we want to improve their living conditions, we ought to invest more in the well-being of these people, offer them health care, offer them um, uh, child care, offer them some form of educational opportunities as part of their package to work for you. And we will see a difference in terms of the quality of the workers and people's commitment to their companies.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's a great final point. And I would just to, like to share one point with you, Mac, uh, on both of us because we're both minorities here. That um, maybe a, a message to the younger people who are listening to us that you know there are challenges, um, but those challenges you can beat those challenges and to stay encouraged and work hard and there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. So would you agree with me on that?
2: Uh, certainly, and I, I think I'm um, leaving testimony to that, and I think a number of people are, so um, you can't give up, and I, I have to say to our youngsters, uh, people, um, education is the pathway to success, both in the United States and overseas. And you can't simply leave it to someone. You have to take ownership of wanting to to learn, wanting to acquire knowledge, and to put it into effective use. And the results will be uh, quite uh, rewarding. So um, yeah. I encourage young people to stay in school and to continue your the education even uh, beyond the first degree.
1: And I, I think that's great. I think that's a great way to end this celebration today. And for our listeners, we have been speaking today with Professor Dr. Max Hillier, Fulbright Scholar and a public international law, human rights, international humanitarian law, United Nations law expert, an author, a lecturer, and also US foreign relations expert. And I was very lucky, I would like to thank also uh, Dr. Sheila Marie Aird at the Empire State College, uh, State University of New York, um, here in Prague, for my introduction to Max. Okay. Uh, they have a great program, educational program here in Prague, which I know Max does teach at. And thank you for the introduction. This has been a great celebration of Black History Week, having you as a guest. And I hope that our listeners enjoyed your advice. And thank you so much, Max.
2: Well, I appreciate the opportunity. It was quite a a pleasure to meet you in Prague. And I hope we uh, will stay in touch and meet again. And thanks for the great work you are doing in trying to build tolerance and diversity in the workplace and in government.
1: Thank you so much. And for listeners, again, you've been listening to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America Business Channel. I am Kimberly Lewis, your host. You can listen to us every Tuesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Pacific time, or you can download us on iTunes or Google Play and reach out to me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. You can tweet with me at leadershipbeyondborders or you can can join me on LinkedIn or on Facebook. And I really, you know, every, each week I end up our show with a word. And I think today I just have a message. And my my leadership message today is for everybody out there to remember Black History Month and take time, read about how some of the great African-American leaders what well, the a contribution they've made in the United States. And my word today is tolerance. And with that, thank you and tune in next week.
0: Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.